I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in T.O., a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. And a couple of the dots have resigned. The deck has been shuffled, but this is not the end of the game. Oh, no. On today's episode, a lot has happened since you last heard me talking about the Greenbelt land swap slash scandal. So you'll get an update on all that's gone down in the past few weeks. Also, What's the deal with the 2018 mandate letters? Why would the Ford government be hiding something so utterly boring? Unless they hold a series of clues, each more fiendish than the last. I think that's far more likely. Plus, you'll get the history behind our old pal Don. You know, Don River. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. say things like, I'll keep you posted on that. Well, I'm staying true to my word because a lot has gone down over the past few weeks regarding the Greenbelt and the Ontario government. So let's get into it. Now, the last time we talked about this was mid-August when Ontario's Auditor General Bonnie Lissick released a report on changes to the Greenbelt. This was to provide information that the public wanted to know and deserved to know, and it laid out pretty much everything we already knew with some recommendations for how to move forward. The report found that of the 7,400 acres of land removed from the Greenbelt, 92% could be tied to just three developers with direct access to the housing ministry. Then a second independent legislative watchdog released another report, and it also found major flaws with the province's decision to remove land from the Greenbelt last December to build housing. The Integrity Commissioner found that former Housing Minister Steve Clark chose to, quote, stick his head in the sand rather than oversee the process of selecting which sites would be removed from the Greenbelt, which, if you didn't know by now, is a swath of protected farmland, forest and wetland stretching from Niagara Falls to Peterborough. And it's meant to be permanently off limits to development. Instead, Clark left it to his chief of staff at the time, Ryan Amato, whose actions alerted some developers to a potential policy change, and the Integrity Report found that this process was deeply flawed and favored the private interests of these developers. More on Clark and Amato in a moment, because they don't go here anymore. But that second report came just two weeks after the Auditor General first revealed what a lot of people already thought to be true that a small group of well-connected developers were able to cherry-pick the sites that would ultimately be removed, providing the landowners with a potential windfall upwards of $8 billion. The Auditor General's report also stated that this chunk of land wasn't needed to build housing. Even as the province aims to get 1.5 million new homes built by 2031, This report stated that it was unnecessary to alter protected environmental land to do so. Land availability, not the biggest issue here. 
And developing these greenbelt properties would require expensive and time-consuming investments into water, sewage, electrical systems, as well as public services, from new roads to schools to community centers. Also, there's pushback that the units that could be built here, they won't be affordable. There's speculation that they'll be multi-million dollar lowercase l luxury homes. So before we get into what happened with Amato and Clark and the premier and Global's Queens Park Bureau chief, Colin DeMello, I want to talk about whataboutism and gaslighting. Fun, right? Quite simply, gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation. And the Ford government, politicians in general, do it a lot. Basically, the person doing the gaslighting seeks to gain power and control over the other person by distorting reality and forcing them to question their own judgment. Some signs of gaslighting would be denying or scoffing, twisting or retelling events to place the blame on you, getting defensive, calling you crazy or too sensitive, even love bombing, saying things like, I only do this because I love you is a form of gaslighting. There's also something called whataboutism. And this is a technique or practice of responding to a difficult question by making a counter-accusation or raising a different issue altogether. And look, I'm sure we all do it. I'm sure I do it. Whether we know we're doing it or not, it's a way of validating ourselves. It gives us power. It's a defense mechanism. But it comes at the expense of others. So you can't know how to stop doing these things if you don't know what they are or how they show up in our daily lives. So this audio goes back to August 31st. But basically, Doug Ford got out in front of the public and said this. I have confidence in Minister Clark. He has a big file. I take full responsibility. The buck stops with me. Steve Clark at the time came out and said this. I, I want to take uh, this opportunity to first acknowledge that yesterday's report of the Integrity Commissioner pointed to very clear flaws uh, to the process that led to the removal of the lands and being removed from the Greenbelt. I, uh, I accept that I ought to have had greater oversight uh, over my former Chief of Staff and over the process. And to Ontarians, I want to say very sincerely that I apologize that I did not. He continued by saying he's committed to making sure that the flaws in the report will not happen again. But that will be hard for him to ensure because less than a week after this apology, Steve Clark resigned. More on that in a moment. But back to the gaslighting, love bombing, and whataboutism. So Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello love him, he got up and asked the premier this. At what point do do you take personal responsibility here? And how are people to have trust in your leadership? A very fair question, in my opinion. And you heard the premier say the buck stops with him. But here comes the whataboutism. Well, th- thank you for that, Colin. And I'm, I'm sure you just walked down the street from your home that you have a home. But do you know how many people don't have a home, Colin? There's hundreds, hold on, there's hundreds of thousands of people that home, hold it. There's hundreds of thousands of people that don't have homes. I know you, Colin, 
a year down the road, if we don't have the homes, you're the first person that's going to be up here saying, why didn't you build the homes? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Well, Colin, guess what? We're going to build homes. We're going to build homes until people have the same opportunity that you have. You have a nice home down the street, but guess what? There's hundreds of thousands of people that don't have your opportunity, that don't have the good paying job that you have. That's the difference. What are you talking about? This is gross. Ford is not answering the question. He's getting defensive and he's deflecting. Asking questions and holding governments to account is quite literally a part of Colin DeMello's job. And this Greenbelt thing is not about Colin's home at all. No one is talking about that. They're talking about you, Mr. Ford, and the fact that you have made a mistake here. Oh, but wait, there's more. Here comes the gaslight. I've been dealing with Colin for 10 years. I give him the utmost respect, and it works both ways. You, you don't attack me, I don't attack him, but you know something, we've known each other for 10 years. Do we see eye to eye on things some days? Yes, some days we don't. So I'm sorry if I offended his feelings. I'm actually quite disgusted by this behavior, but unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me in the least. What did surprise me was the fact that Steve Clark, five days after apologizing, followed in the steps of his chief of staff, Ryan Amato, and resigned on Labor Day Monday. This over the process called out by those two recent Greenbelt reports that did a pretty good job of outlining the flaws that favored certain developers and lacked transparency. Now, according to this report, Clark was found to have breached sections two and three of the Members Integrity Act, which pertain to conflicts of interest and the use of insider information. So now the buck really does appear to be stopping at Premier Doug Ford. The only person he can blame now is staring back at him in the mirror. So, once again, Ford got out in front of reporters to comment on Clark's resignation and to announce a cabinet shuffle. Taking on Clark's job is former Minister of Long-Term Care, Paul Calandra. Minister Calandra has a proven record of delivering on tough assignments. He has a proven record of getting it done. He's going to bring the same get-it-done approach to municipal affairs and housing as he takes on the housing supply crisis, the biggest challenge facing governments in Canada. Uh-huh. I would tell you who else went where in the provincial cabinet, but I'll let interim liberal leader John Fraser tell you this instead. The cabinet shovel is irrelevant. The premier's future land review is irrelevant. Despite the changes, all the same people who approved this $8.3 billion Greenbelt giveaway are still at the cabinet table. It's just that a few of them have changed where they sit. Now I want to shift to the Q&A portion of the presser with Premier Ford, because it must be so frustrating to be a reporter, to sit through all the prepared statements like this one. I also want to give my gratitude to Steve Clark for his years of service in cabinet. I've always had so much respect for Steve, his dedication to his community, and his unwavering belief in Ontario. His decision to step away couldn't have been easy, but it only demonstrates his integrity, his maturity, and his commitment to our province. For that, I want to thank him. His integrity is what you'll remember most? Really? Clark stepped down because he essentially failed an integrity report. 
read the room. Because inside that room are reporters, like Colin DeMello. And they have two small opportunities to glean information. They can ask one question and a follow-up. What they're not guaranteed is an answer. In fact, it's pretty much guaranteed you won't get a straight answer. And if there's one thing Ford knows how to do, it's stall for time. Here's Colin's first question. Hey, good morning, Premier Colin DeMello with Global News. Um, I wanted to ask you about the mandate letter that you had given to Steve Clark in 2022. Uh, it specifically asked him to open up lands of the green belt. Um, did he have the power to say no to that mandate letter? Okay, so regarding a mandate letter, more on that in a moment. Did Clark have the power to say no to you? That should be a yes, he did have that power, or no, he did not have that power. But instead, we get this. Well, every uh, minister has the opportunity to sit down uh, with myself. I'm, I'm pretty accessible. I've been told I'm probably the most accessible uh, premier that's ever existed. Uh, I take calls from my MPPs. I take calls from my ministers. I take calls from mayors right across this province. And uh, I listen to their concerns. We have a great working relationship with 444 mayors and wardens across this uh, province. I'm in constant communication with them, not just about building homes, even though that's the number one issue our province is facing. The number one issue facing Canadians right across this country. Uh, they have access to give me a call at any time. And if they have other concerns, uh, we address those concerns and we have a great working relationship. I actually think I can pinpoint the moment Ford forgets what question he's trying to avoid answering. And now your follow-up. Uh, okay, and I wanted to ask about the relationship between the government and the owners of those 15 parcels of land. Um, did your government enter into any legally binding contracts with those owners to stipulate that they would have to build X amount of housing on that land? Was there a contract between the Ontario government and the owners, or is it just up to um, a handshake? Was there a contract? Yes, no, or? Well, that's going to be up to the facilitator to make sure that these lands include uh, community centers, hospitals, long-term care, parks. And that, that's something that uh, we wouldn't be able to do if a, a builder down the street, for instance, decides to build. Uh, we, we don't go up and say, you got to build this, you got to build that. We rely on the municipalities uh, to build homes, to make sure that they, they get the permits out in a, a timely fashion. We've given them every single tool possible to make sure it makes their life easier to get homes built. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure that we build those 1.5 million homes for people that, you know, I talk to hundreds and hundreds of people uh, weekly, monthly. I talk to someone on the weekend, you know, a family that's concerned about their, their uh, young, young son that won't be able to afford a home. Uh, another person had their home burnt down. It burnt down. They couldn't afford a new home. We're going to exhaust every avenue in looking at modular homes, traditional builds. We're going to exhaust every avenue in Ontario. We're going to go across the country to make sure that if they're modular home builders, that we bring them into Ontario. You know, I have a, a great friend, uh, you know, Blaine Higgs, the premier of New Brunswick, that told me that they have four companies that build modular homes in New Brunswick. And after we exhaust all other avenues, we're going to go to the U.S. and encourage them to open up their plants in Ontario to build modular homes. What are you talking about? 
This was a question about having a contract or not. And he's going on about a friend's kid who can't afford a home and someone else's house that burnt down and modular housing. That's one minute and 40 seconds of nothing. It's like when you're stuck in a conversation with someone who just keeps talking and talking and you find yourself saying, oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Like 450 times. And this was just for Colin's questions. There's like 20 more minutes of this, at least. My goodness. But something did stick out to me. What is this about a mandate letter? You'll find out after this. about mandate letters. Are we calling this a scoop or a leak? A bit of both? Global News has obtained the 2018 mandate letters Premier Doug Ford gave his cabinet ministers. Basically, mandate letters outline objectives that each minister will work to accomplish while they're on the job, as well as the challenges they'll address in their role. According to Colin DeMello, the main letter demands high ethical standards among cabinet ministers with a promise that the premier would hold them personally accountable. This really was an ideological letter showing the cabinet ministers what their North Star of governing should be, kind of falling in line with where Premier Doug Ford was in 2018. It was all about the for the people mantra. And the premier had said that all of their decisions had to go through that lens of is this beneficial for people in Ontario or not? Quote, for far too long, too many people have been neglected or ignored by previous governments who Mm. become trapped in a bubble of elite interests. And the premier said, I am determined that will not happen to us. The premier said a lot of things in 2018, including this. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Given how Premier Ford has handled the green belt land swaps and the fallout from the integrity reports, I think we need to get the definition of ethical and accountable. Now, you might not think that a stack of mandate letters are that thrilling, but it wasn't easy to track them down. Now, they're routinely released by governments. However, between July 2018 and July 2021, Ontario Crown lawyers dedicated several many taxpayer-funded hours to the province's case to keep these letters under wraps. I say several many hours, but the CBC has broken it down. 1,672, or 209 eight-hour workdays, or about 10 months of 40-hour work weeks within three years to hide these letters. But why would the province go to such lengths to keep these letters from the public? Things just don't add up because in 2018... The premier himself would be holding them personally accountable, right? Would be the ultimate watchdog in the Ontario government. Fast forward five years later, and it's the premier who's facing a lot of questions about why he hasn't done anything. I mean, this whole Greenbelt scandal is an example. The premier said, I didn't know anything about the process until it was actually presented to him at a cabinet meeting, right? He's gone from the person who was kind of the watchdog to the person who's now being surprised by the decisions that are being made within his own government, uh, allegedly. Now, given this 2020 
2023 Greenbelt scandal, the Ford government is facing the exact accusations that they vowed to reject in 2018, Mm. that, you know, select insiders or developers, people with deep pockets have been given an insider access to the Ford government to get a benefit that not a lot of Ontarians would get. And the premier himself never really did hold anyone accountable. Ryan Amato, the chief of staff to uh, then Housing Minister Steve Clark, resigned of his own accord. The premier never asked for it. So what's happening now? Well, there's more to come on these mandate letters. You can get the scoop at globalnews.ca. In the meantime, newly appointed Housing Minister Paul Calandra says he'll launch a review of the Greenbelt development, which could essentially require the government to remove or even add lands. He also announced that he will be delaying the appointment of facilitators who would be tasked with reviewing regional municipalities. That should now come at the end of September and involves Waterloo, Halton, Niagara, Simcoe, Durham and York. And you may be saying, Danny... What does any of this have to do with Toronto? Well, do you like fresh air, local produce? How about nature and clean drinking water and dry basements? Protecting the Greenbelt is ensuring the long-term health of urban river valleys. The Greenbelt plays a huge role in protecting the hydrological features that we've come to rely on for clean drinking water, flood protection, and healthy ecosystems. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's a big old river cutting straight through the city of Toronto that goes by the name of Don. For more on Don, Mr. River, if you're nasty, and it is, here's producer Glenn Bergonier. Now, if you live in Toronto, you know that the Don River can be beautiful. It can be scenic. It can be sewagey. And sometimes it's flooding. And it cuts right through the heart of the city. But it is safe to assume that this river existed well before the city of Toronto or even York was erected. But did you know that there are some signs that the earliest humans could have arrived at the Don River over 12,000 years ago? In fact, there was archeological evidence found to support a theory that at a site just east of Riverdale Park, known as Withrow Site, there was discovered in 1886, human remains and other artifacts that can easily date back over 5,000 years And this area is believed to be one of the first permanent settlements in this area. But instead of staying in ancient history, let's jump forward a few thousand years to the late 1700s, when the, at the time, Lieutenant Governor John Simcoe officially renamed the river the Don River, due to it reminding him of the River Don back in England, his home. But even before this was renamed, it actually had a few First Nations indigenous titles. One of them being the Ashinaabe name, Wakostanash, which literally means the river coming from the back burnt grounds. After the river's rename and the city of York was still being developed, many lumber, flour, and paper mills were erected along the shores of this river, turning this picturesque ravine into an industrial backdrop. And this went on strongly until the 1880s, which led to massive amounts of pollutants and other debris turning portions of the Don into a swampy, toxic, marsh-like area. Then in the 1880s, sewers were finally laid through the ravine to divert the raw sewage from entering the river directly. But the pollution caused by the industrial runoff and sewage persisted and caused noticeable issues until closer to the 1960s. Actually, even to this very day, there are still areas of the Don, such as the Taylor Massey Creek, that have shown little improvement to the problem of the pollution. 
This push to revitalize and clean the Don River continued to gain traction, especially after World War II when a growing interest in conservation efforts led to the creation of the Don Valley Conservation Authority in 1947, whose main goal was to manage watersheds and preserve green spaces. But in the 1950s, construction began for the Don Valley Parkway and was completed in the early 60s to better facilitate a growing Toronto population. Sadly, in doing so, the river had to be rerouted and in the following years, urbanization and expansion continued to reduce the amount of watershed land, which has increased the amount of flooding and pollution, which led to the river being heavily polluted again. This time, it was so extreme that by 1969, an activist-led movement became known as the Funeral of the Don was held to highlight just how bad the Don River had become and how little time we had to react. Then, another surgence of conservation came around in the late 80s which led to the creation of a task force known as Bring Back the Don, which was born out of concerned citizens in the city of Toronto making the Don River, quote, clean, green, and accessible. And now, jump forward again to 2023, although there is still a lot of work to do, a vast majority of the Don River has regenerated and is seeing a strong and stable return of animals and marine life. So much so that it can even sustain limited sport fishing. So yes, sewage and flood runoff are still present ongoing issues that constantly plague the Don River and subsequently the Don Valley Parkway. And there are still lingering patches of pollutants due to heavy industrialization over 100 years ago. But by and large, the city of Toronto banded together to save this beautiful, serene, and ultimately highly important river and continue to do so to this very day. No, I love you, Don, but sometimes you stink. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Chris Dunner and Andrew Dernford are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next Wednesday with a big focus on Toronto. We're going to get a little artsy. So I hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll chat again soon. Bye-bye.